Good morning and welcome. This episode is about to get started. But before that, a few things you should know. First of all, this show is brought to you for free. To support, please consider sharing the episode with your friend, leaving a great review or signing up for my bi-monthly top five email. What is it? It's a free email that I craft twice a month and send out to thousands of you where I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also gear and tips and things I've been thinking about lately that really impacted me in a way. If you too want to join in on the fun, please visit ptl.fm forward slash top five, T-O-P five, and you will be in for the next edition. Now, last but not least, all podcast show notes are available at ptl.fm forward slash podcast. Thank you so much for being here and let's get started. Good morning, podcast, and welcome to a new episode on the Pierre Tillembert Show. I am Pierre, your host, and today we have another amazing guest, and my guest today is Jessica Moore. Jessica is a meteorologist, a professional photographer based out of Colorado Springs in Colorado, and she is native from that beautiful state, and I've got to discover her work through Twitter and through the NFT space because she's been taking incredible storm photos that really caught my attention. And after some digging, I realized that she was working in that field. She went and pursued a college degree at Mississippi State University in broadcast and operational meteorology. And that passion around meteorology blended perfectly, in my opinion, with photography because the shots, and we'll link everything in the show notes, the shots are incredible and bring so much power to them. It's like capturing the power of a storm in one click. And I want to dig into those stories in that episode. Also, something that's very important is that Jessica's work has been shared across all channels, whether it's on national TV, whether it's on the internet, you might have seen her photos already, especially if you're interested in epic storms, uh, thunderstorms, and anything around that. And I think Jessica is going to tell us a little more in a few seconds. But welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm excited for this one. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to it. Jessica, all right, we'll just start right into the eye of the storm in a way. I want to hear about one of those experiences. Why don't you tell us about what happens when you're shooting? And was there a specific time when you were shooting one of those storms where you're like, this is the perfect shot I need? (laughs) Yeah, those moments shooting around a storm are just so exciting and dynamic and intense because everything is happening so quickly. The storm is always in motion. So that means you have to be always in motion. There's not always very much time to stand in one place and set up a shot. Sometimes you're right in the path of the storm and it's coming right at you. So you have to get your shots super, super fast. You have to pretty much already have your settings perfect. There's not a whole lot of time to fine tune your settings. You just get out of the car and you're fighting all the elements. You're fighting the wind, the rain, hail. Sometimes you're dodging hailstones just to get that perfect shot and then get in your car and dart away before the storm takes you over. So it's very intense. And it's, you know, if you look at most of my shots, almost all of them are shot handheld for that reason, because you really have to be constantly mobile when you're shooting these storms. So there's no time to set up tripods. Generally, when you're close to storms, you just have to get out, fire away several shots and and keep moving. So it's always very intense in the heat of the moment. Most of the time when those storms are moving, you know, 20 to 30 miles an hour or more, there have definitely been some really intense moments. 
there was a particular storm that I chased near Imperial, Nebraska, which is far southwestern Nebraska. And the storm initially kind of developed in northeast Colorado. And that's where I was initially tracking it and kind of moving along with it. And as I continued east with this storm, I started to realize it's actually the storm that's behind me. Right so for here. those of you guys, if you can see or otherwise we'll put it in the show notes, <laughs> yes. there's this really great, I caught it from the moment we got on the call. I was like, wow, that piece is epic <laughs> behind you. So that is it. So that's Imperial. So I'm continuing east with this storm and I'm realizing it's starting to get these sculpted layers like you're seeing there, just all these individual layers in the clouds. And I'm realizing this is about to be just a massive storm. And so I know that I need to get further out east ahead of it so that I can really photograph the whole structure of the storm, which is why I also shoot with a super wide lens so that I can get the full scope of the storm in the frame. So I'm actually pretty close to that storm. It looks like I'm a good distance, but I'm still fairly close to it. But then as that storm got closer to me, I waited until it was nearly right overhead and I got some of the most insane supercell structure shots that I've ever captured because it's you just have this whole mothership of a storm just hovering above your head. And so while I'm taking these photos, I'm like blown away with my jaw hanging open that I'm, I'm witnessing what I'm seeing. And all at the same time, the wind is howling into the storm so loudly. It's like howling through the power lines above me in a way that sounds haunting. It almost sounds like something not from this earth. It's this haunting, howling sound of the wind screaming through the power lines, 40, 50 miles an hour, just being sucked into the storm. It, it's kind of like the storm is inhaling and you're right in its breath. And it's like almost trying to suck you in while you're shooting the storm. There's nothing really that can describe how it feels when you're standing in that close of a proximity to a storm that powerful. And it feels like it's just going to sweep you up in any moment, but you're just shooting away and shooting away. I, I literally was like frozen in place. I couldn't make myself move because it was just so like an out-of-body experience, just watching the storm hovering right above my head. That was by far one of my most insane adrenaline-pumping storm intercepts that I've ever had in my 10 years of chasing storms. There's a lot to unpack here. I think we're going to go back to some terminology also and so you can explain what they are. But I want to know, did you escape? How does that work with that limit? Like when do you know you're in danger? When do you know you're not with those storms? I knew I was in danger, but I mean, I knew that when I'm in that close of a proximity to a storm, I always have multiple, quote unquote, we call them escape routes. So that means I'm either going to go north, south, or east out ahead of the storm. So for this particular instance, I knew that I was going to jump north as soon as I got into the storm's core, which is basically where the heaviest rain is falling. And so as soon as that storm came over me, I just jumped north into the storm's core, at least there I know that like tornadoes generally not going to form north of the storm. So I, that's, that's kind of my safe zone by just jumping north into the storm's core. If I would have gone south, I likely would have driven into that storm was just about to produce a tornado. And it actually produced a tornado as it was crossing the north and south highway that I was on. So if I had gone south, I could have possibly driven right into it. It's a lot of it is just truly situational awareness and experience with being that close to storms and watching how the storm's moving and just preparing based on 
kind of these little clues that the storm gives you on how it's moving and what it's doing, if it's cycling, because if it's cycling, that means it, it might be trying to wrap up again and maybe produce another tornado, but you have some time because it's not going to produce one right now. So you have to identify certain visual cues by looking at storms to know where you need to be to photograph them. Wow. I'm fascinated by that. When I was a kid, I used to watch those documentaries, you know, with like storm chasers or like meteorology things. So um, I'm a big fan of that space. How do you decide what landscape you're going to shoot that storm? Are you always trying to find, let's say, something very plain? Because I drove through, I think it was Utah, and, and I had never been in that environment where you could see literally thunderstorm from miles away. And it's incredible. And you're like, what is this? You know, Can you get the same effects if you're in the mountains or do you have to be in those like super flat landscapes? Typically, your landscapes that you're working with storm chasing are typically going to be flat, typically going to be in the plains because that's where you're seeing most storms is in the southern, central and northern plains of the United States. That's where we get most of our tornadoes. And, and we can get them, obviously, in the eastern U.S., southeastern U.S. They can happen anywhere, really. But typically, the standard area for chasing storms has, is in the plains. So the plains are typically very wide open, very flat. It is really hard to find a good foreground because you're in very rural, desolate areas. Perfect example with those shots behind me, there's not always a whole lot to work with in terms of foreground. You often just have farmland. So if you can't find like a windmill or a grain mill or like Sometimes I like to see if I can find like old abandoned farmhouses, things like that. But they're just sometimes with storm chasing, there's just not a whole lot to work with. So you just have to work with the landscape that you're given. To me, the storm is the photo. So you don't really need much else to add to it. It's like literally the whole frame is almost filled with that storm. And you just have a little bit of landscape at the bottom, you know, just some wide flat prairie. And that's really all you need, honestly, for me, because I don't feel that a foreground is always that necessary when you have something that visually impressive just in the sky. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's almost like you flip the landscape and then mm -hmm. you here you got your mountain, which is that crazy storm. And then the sky, the blue sky or the green sky. And that's funny. The, it's funny you say that because that's literally what I base my NFT collections around is called stormscapes. So we're not photographing landscapes here. We're photographing stormscapes because it's truly like the atmosphere's art. It really is the art of the atmosphere. And so that's, that's amazing to me. And I'll speak for many who might come from Europe where we don't really have those stormscapes. We don't see it the same way usually arrive on us. And the first few times I would see those images, I was like, is that even real? Is this real life? Living in Chicago got me to get to know those because if you stay by the lakefront, you have those massive clouds coming in sometimes. And if you're a little bit northeast, you can actually see the city, the background with the, the lake and, and those like insane clouds coming in. And you're like, is there an alien spaceship coming <laughs> or what is happening? You know, I, I want to know what came first, meteorology or that passion for shooting the, and chasing, obviously, the storms. What came first and how did it get together? What's your original story around that? So I've been literally obsessed with weather and photography since I was a little girl. I've literally have always had a camera in my hand. 
truly since elementary school, I've always had a camera, you know, whether it was just a little crappy little point and shoot or a little, little cameras, just shooting things has, has always been just a part of who I am and something that comes naturally to me. You know, photography is my way of experiencing the world around me in a deeper level. It helps me to quiet my mind, slow down and take in the world around me and find beauty in unexpected places. And then weather, you know, I kind of grew up in a family of weather nuts. We all just are crazy about the weather. So I had my uncle teaching me how to read the radar when I was a little girl. And then I had my dad telling me stories about how he and his brothers watched tornadoes from their rooftop in Dallas, Texas, growing up, where literally watched a tornado suck up a 7-Eleven gas station sign just down the block from them. And they were watching it on their roof. I think it's just, it was always, both of these passions were always just ingrained in me because I was surrounded by it. Like growing up, my whole family, every time a thunderstorm would roll through, we would go out into the garage and just watch it and literally pull up camping chairs and just watch the storms. It was just, we are always excited to watch it. And so that kind of progressed into like my high school and college years, early college years. I was kind of always out looking at the clouds and starting to study meteorology on my own accord, but I didn't really know too much yet. It took a while for me to find my path with meteorology. I'm 36 and I just graduated last year with my meteorology degree. But before that, I was, I really was chasing storms since my daughter was a year old. Like, as soon as I could get out of the house and chase storms, I was chasing storms. And it was funny because I actually started shooting storms while she was a newborn. And I started shooting them from our balcony in Denver. That's where I got my first lightning shots. That's where I just started to really learn a lot more about meteorology. But through my years of chasing, I just really was like, I want to be a meteorologist. This is what I want to do. While I was in school, I was able to get a couple pretty cool gigs working for the media. One in particular, just being a field correspondent for a national television network, which was really a great experience overall. And that gave me a lot of experience with just talking on air in front of an audience and just talking about weather and just being out in the field doing what I love. Because there's a lot of meteorologists who you see delivering your forecasts every day on the news, but not very many actually go out into the field and chase storms to document them and talk about them when they're out storm chasing. That's a very unique thing to do that I think not a lot of meteorologists are willing to actually take those kinds of risks. So it makes me kind of a little bit more of a unique asset, I think, in that type of position, just being willing to go out into the storm. And also not many women actually do that, at least not in the older days. That's changing now. There's a lot more women that are storm chasing. And that's really amazing to see like more and more women in the field who are incredibly talented. But yeah, so that's just been my journey. And, you know, again, like I said, graduated with my degree last year. And initially my plan was to go on and do field research, things like that. However, I had some unfortunate, unexpected health situations develop that kind of put that at least on hold for the time being. And so it was around April, May, June that I was starting to look for other options in terms of jobs. And that's when I discovered NFTs and started to find my way with NFT photography. And at the time, it was only myself and one other storm chaser that was out there putting out storm images. So it's been quite a journey evolving through there and just never in a million years imagining that I could reach a global audience with my storm images. It's really just incredible. It's just that ability to show people this side of storms that I think 
most may never ever see with their own two eyes because like you said it is so rare and unique you have to live in a certain geographic area to see these storms so there are a lot of people that just honestly like looking at these storms like you said have a hard time even believing that they're real sometimes even when i'm chasing storms and i'm looking at a scene like that i ask myself is this really real am i really seeing this it just blows my mind what the atmosphere can do and how massive these storms can be and so powerful and beautiful especially with all the different lighting environments that you can see around storms it's truly one of the most magical things in the whole world so i'm just so glad that i found this passion i found storm chasing and it's just everything to me. That's awesome. I, I pinned a few things in my head that I want to get back to. We're going to dig into the NFT world a lot deeper after. Before, how much do we need to know about meteorology to actually be able to chase those storms? Like, how does it come together? Forecasting itself is an art form. It truly is. I, I think a lot of people don't see it that way. It is a very scientific process, but it is also an art form. There's finesse involved. So it's a lot of pattern recognition and looking at weather models and being able to interpret them to kind of understand like where you need to be, where the highest chances for storms are going to be. And there's like definitely big guiding tools out there, such as the Storm Prediction Center puts out these daily forecasts, severe thunderstorm outlooks, basically, where they kind of highlight these general target areas of where they think the highest chances of storms are going to be. But then it's up to you to do your own forecasting and look at the data and satellite and all the different parameters of the atmosphere that day and look at the environment and just do your own forecasting and decide, okay, well, do I agree with this forecast? And where do I want to fine tune my location to start out that day and wait for storms to develop? Because essentially you're doing forecasting. For me, I'm looking at the long range where you're looking at like the overall patterns of the jet stream and things like that, looking for certain clues that could indicate that there's potential for severe weather in a week or two, things like that. Then as you get closer and closer to those days, you can start to fine tune your forecasting and try to get more of an idea of where you're going to specifically position yourself in the hopes of having the highest chances of good storms. From there, you just have to put yourself in that position and hope that you made a good forecast and that Mother Nature decides to cooperate with you. It's really complex and challenging at times, depending on the forecast. And sometimes it's really cut and dry and super easy and very obvious where you need to go. So it, it's an art form in and of itself. It truly is. When I saw your art and things, I was like, oh my God, this is my childhood things that I love to watch. You know, it's there. It's in real life. Like real people outside of my TV do it. And I was like, oh my God, I, we need to do a YouTube episode where I go and follow you while you're shooting your storm and I try to shoot a storm. And then I was thinking, I'm like, how likely is it that we can actually scale that? I understand like there will be a period, maybe like summer or spring where it will be more likely, but I'm like, it's something where I, I almost have to be in an area for three weeks and be like, okay, maybe today it's going to happen. It's not like Milky Way shots where you can predict 10 years in advance, like this is going to be the right <laughs> spot with the right angle and yeah. that's how it's going to hit. Exactly. Um, There's There literally are a lot of days, especially in late May and early June. I live in Colorado. There are a lot of days where literally I will just pick up all my gear and run out the door because I just see that storms are happening literally like an hour from me and I could just 
run out and go chase. But then there's other times that I have to plan days in advance and I have to make the journey to like Oklahoma or up into the Dakotas, depending on what time of year it is. And sometimes I'll go as far as the upper Midwest to Illinois and Minnesota and places like that, but not as often because it's more of a gamble and it's expensive because really when you're thinking about it, storm chasing, you're spending all that money on gas, hotels, food, lodging, like it can be expensive. So yeah, like it is really hard to schedule it. There is that certain time of year where I just know that I'm basically blocking out this whole chunk of time between I start chasing typically in March, but I'm like really going full on with it starting April all the way through May, June, even July and August, because July and August can take you further up North. Like I said, the Dakotas and the upper Midwest where you're located, that's typically more that time of year where we see more of the severe weather threat shifting further north where you guys are. It can take you anywhere, really. Yeah, here, this year wasn't the, we didn't have that many thunderstorms, but I remember last year was just insane. Like I think in July, August, we just had them on a consistent basis all the time. I had a few friends who got like epic shots with the big clouds and I don't have the names, but I think it's cumulonimbus, I think big cloud and then the thunderstorm and at the same time there's a rainbow because we're by the lake and there's some I don't know how everything happens at the same time but and what is crazy is that you can literally be in the city and not realize what's above your head or like what's happening like how, how beautiful it is and you go a few miles out and you're like wow what is that experience happening right there how do people feel and you feel nothing when you're under it in a way Do you get any lessons, let's say, out of that storm chasing that you can apply through life or that you can that can help you look at life a different way? I'm I'm kind of curious because it seems so extraordinary in a way. That is such a good question. Truly, that is because there are a lot of parallels between storm chasing and life. Storm chasing has taught me resilience. It's taught me endurance. It's taught me to believe in myself and trust my gut a lot more. There really is a lot of grinding it out when it comes to chasing. It's so many hours on the road. Sometimes it's 12 to 15 hours per day that you're driving and it's exhausting. It'll literally just drain you mentally and emotionally and physically chasing storms days on end. And you'll have these moments where you want to give up. And especially if you fail to forecast correctly on a chase and you miss some really incredible storms or tornadoes somewhere else. And You have to learn. That's happened a lot to me. You have to learn how to take something away from that. That helps you become a better forecaster next time. There's a lot of lessons to be taken away. And I I really think resilience and belief in yourself are really the biggest things. And resilience is a skill that I've constantly had to develop through my whole life. And a lot of the struggles that I've been through is just like, just never giving up, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how many times you fail there is a lesson to be learned that you that makes you a stronger person on the other side of this failure if you want to call it a failure you need to fail in order to succeed so as many times as i've failed chasing i have come back stronger and become a better forecaster better chaser and i've every it, it's funny it's like every time i feel like i'm at the end of my ropes with chasing and i'm like man i want to give up this this season is so challenging right now i just I was about to ask, how many times have you come to the point where you're like, so many, 
gosh, there's been seasons where like the entire season was basically a bust. That's what we basically call it in chasing when storms don't evolve the way that you're expecting, if they even evolve at all. And 2018 was one of those years for me. 2020 was also a difficult year. It seems like the odd number of years with chasing, I seem to be the most successful and have the best chase careers, but, or chase seasons. But no, it's like, I have gotten to that place many times of just like questioning myself and having these like introspective moments of like, why am I even still doing this? This is so much money that I'm just throwing down the drain. It's exhausting. I'm like, it does make certain things hard because I don't work traditional jobs because I need to be able to take weeks off at a time to go chase. It makes a lot of things in life more challenging, but I just feel that as long as you are doing something that sets your soul on fire and you're passionate about it, you're crazy about this thing that fuels you, this, this passion, it's, you're going to have those moments. You've got to push through them. That even happens as an artist too. A lot of times where you're doubting yourself as an artist and wondering if your art is good enough, wondering if your voice is even being heard as an artist. It's, you have those moments of just wanting to throw in the towel, but it's when you push through those moments and get to the other side, that's when I think your greatest growth as a person and as an artist occurs because you've pushed through that and you've challenged those voices that say, you know, maybe I'm just not good enough or I can't do this anymore. You're proving why you can and you need to, like you need to keep creating your art. You need to keep chasing these storms because this is the thing that makes you feel most alive. To give up on chasing would be to like cut out a a part of my self that is, it's literally ingrained in who I am. So without chasing, I'm not a whole person. So that's how I always just push myself through it because I know no matter how rough that season is, I'm going to come out the next season, capture something like that. And I'm going to forget all about how horrible the year before that year was. Because literally this was 2019 that I captured. 2019 was incredible. I saw beautiful tornadoes, incredible storm structure, all of this right on the back end of 2018, where I felt like I saw virtually nothing. I saw one tornado the whole year and the rest of the year pretty much sucked. And I was just like, why am I even still chasing storms? What am I doing with my life? And then 2019 happened and every single chase was like, for me, it was honestly incredible. So I just think there's a lot of life parallels for sure in chasing. So you just, you just have to keep pushing. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, anything that takes time dedication really tests you a lot. Yeah, it's not like street photography where you can go out and... Mm-hmm you're more exposed to things. It doesn't mean you're going to get the, the million dollar shot, but you're more exposed to it. Here, you have so much like downtime of like doubting yourself. Like, yeah. why am I doing this? I'm driving 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> I drove 12 hours to look at blue skies. What am I doing with my life? <laughs> just Let's get happens. to Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. That's amazing. Okay, one last question around that, but because I'm curious. What's your philosophy? What happens to the storm itself in terms of, first of all, let's go weird. Do you call the storm also by a name? Like, do you personify a little bit the storm when you chase it? So, you know how I was calling that one Imperial? Yes. So with the really iconic storms or like storms that, like storms that produce tornadoes that impact towns, we often refer to those storms by the name of the town that was most directly impacted. And it's, it is strange that we kind of do that, but it's, it just helps us 
put this visual together of, okay, so this storm, we're calling this tornado the El Reno tornado because it was iconic and it impacted, you know, area, like most of the area near El Reno. And that's just a really classic tornado event. And then just a lot of different events like Joplin, the Joplin tornado, which was very deadly tornado. There's multiple tornadoes that have hit more Oklahoma. So you have to actually specify which more tornado because there were so many prolific tornadoes that have impacted that area. So, yeah, I mean, we do kind of typically name them based on the towns that they occurred nearby. Okay. And you personally, when you chase it, you call it it or she or he? No, I, I think it's more just like talking about mother nature. Maybe sometimes I say she in reference to mother nature. But yeah, no, I, I think that's that's pretty much it. We, we kind of name the storms after they impact a certain area. Got it. That makes sense. So I'm fascinated because those storms, for anyone who doesn't know, like you're looking at blue skies and a few hours or minutes later, suddenly the, the whole thing is transformed, right? It's not a matter of like it takes a week or it takes a days. It can be within the same day. Am I accurate on that one? That's exactly right. It's That's one of my most favorite things is just sitting in an empty field, looking at the blue skies and knowing that you can just feel it in the atmosphere. You can feel the instability and the energy that's just churning in the atmosphere, waiting for that magical ingredient to ignite storm development right in front of you. And it's when it happens like that, it's just truly magical. So you, you can feel it, right? Yeah. Okay. For anyone who hasn't experienced that, Correct me on that one, because that's something I heard back in when I'm in the French Alps and stuff. And when the sky starts turning yellow orange, but like a soft glow and you don't know where it's come from, like we have a time reference. I think it's like the, the storm is within an hour, like thunderstorms in the mountains or like 30 minutes. I can't remember. But I remember the first time I actually noticed it, I noticed it before it happened. And I was like, this is fascinating, you know? And then the guide was like, because we we're like doing a mountain biking trip across the Alps and we had to cross a, a peak. And it was, I think, at around nine, 10,000 feet high on between nine and 12. And so we were like biking and he's like, well, the moment the wind comes, the rain's going to be there within five minutes. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> within five <laughs> minutes, it was like hailing and like raining on us. And then there was wow. thunderstorms. And I was like, wow, having someone show you or experience that, it just shows you like how we don't notice. If you're not like expert or if you no one ever showed you, you don't notice it, but it's just around us. It's beautiful. Almost makes me wonder what it would... What happens with those storms? You know, it's almost like our emotions when they build up. It's like exactly. they build up, they explode, and then it's gone. We're, we're exactly. fine. <laughs> That's perfect analogy. Exactly. <laughs> All right, let, let's shift gears and, and get into the, the little bit of the art and the business side of things. First, you mentioned that you had some health issues and you were going to go in, into the research Getting back a little bit to that, if that's okay with you, I'm just curious about how did you navigate that challenging time? And then we can get to how the NFT played a role in that because I felt like anytime, I, f I don't know, personally, I would try to fight against things that are telling me no, you know, or like, or yes. even my body, you know, so. Uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. So it's been a journey. It just kind of started in 2019, kind of August 
is really it's crazy. I remember the exact day, August 27th, 2019, where my whole entire life changed. And I started to have what I could only describe at the time as felt like a seizure. It was truly the most terrifying thing that I've ever experienced. It was just full body muscle spasms and convulsions and just about to faint and lose consciousness. And my heart was beating like through my chest. And it was just so crazy. I didn't know what was going on. I started having these episodes from that day. I started having them like all the time. And I didn't know what was going on. The doctors couldn't figure it out. Some doctor kept trying to tell me it was anxiety, but I've had panic attacks before. This is something totally different because it's full body loss of control of your bodily functions. And literally like it was something neurological going on that no one could figure out. I bet I probably went to 12 to 15 different specialists trying to figure out what was going on. And every single specialist would be like, okay, well, I can find a few things that are a little off, but nothing's really pointing to some direct cause. So basically everyone was able to tell that something was off, but couldn't figure out why. It took me going to four different neurologists before the fourth one finally ran some really specific tests and found out that finally through those testing, that those tests found two very rare antibodies that I, for some reason that my body produces, which basically kind of led to the discovery that I have autoimmune autonomic neuropathy, which basically just means like the failure of your autonomic nervous system, which controls your automatic functions like breathing, heart rate, your digestion, your body's ability to regulate its own temperature, your ability to regulate your own blood pressure, you know, just things like that kind of a function that you need. Just kind of everything. (laughs) Kind of everything, you know, like the things that you need to survive and live. And then I also have Sjogren's, which is a different autoimmune disease. So I just got this like double whammy of like a hell of a diagnosis to finally, I finally got this diagnosis in April of this year. And it felt like to back up just a little bit, I was last year in 2020, I was, that's when I was going through all my testing during the pandemic when it was very scary to go to hospitals and clinics, you know, because it just felt like every day I'm putting myself at risk going to all these tests and all this stuff. But anyway, like that was my last year of college and I was going to college online, Mississippi State, but I was determined that when I graduated at the end of November of 2020, I was going to drive to Mississippi and go to my graduation in person. And I ended up having to go by myself because I didn't want anyone in my family to risk traveling. But to me, it was worth risking because I've never graduated from anything before. So it was really important to me to have this moment of graduating. And in my head, I was just like starting to accept that maybe my future is going to look a little bit different than what I thought. But I was still kind of lying to myself and saying, oh, no, it'll be fine. Once you graduate, you can just go kind of apply to grad school. I was really planning on immediately applying to grad school at either CSU Fort Collins or CU Boulder here in Colorado. Both have really great atmospheric science programs and I was super stoked about it. There's still a part of me that wants to do that at some point, but I do miss school and all of this stuff. But like once I graduated, I just kind of had these moments of just reflection and wondering like, what is the future really going to hold for me? I just felt like I couldn't really apply to regular jobs because how quickly my health can just deteriorate rapidly. Just in a given day, if I'm having a bad flare-up of my issues, it's really, really challenging. It's it's already hard enough being a single mom and making sure she's taken care of and provided for. But like, it's basically in this point of like, I I really need to get creative with the type of income that 
that I'm creating here. I, I didn't really know what I was looking for. I just basically got through the chase season around June timeframe. I was just starting to really feel the pressure of like, I need to find something. I need to do something. And it was literally at that time that I discovered NFTs and I was starting to research really heavily into NFTs and really starting to kind of dive into the community and kind of figure out what the community was all about. And I think I listed my Genesis piece on foundation at the very end of June or something like that. And it was hard in the beginning. I was just trying to find my way. And that was also about the time frame that I started going through some really serious medical treatments. So that was another reason why I was like feeling this pressure. I was like, I know that I'm about to start like three months of these really intense steroid infusions, which take a week to go through and then a week to recover from because of just how intense these steroid infusions are. And they wipe out your immune system. So it's like, because basically the whole idea was these infusions were going to wipe out my immune system so that hopefully we could like hard reset my immune system to kind of reboot itself so it would stop, maybe hopefully stop producing these antibodies and, you know, these harmful antibodies that are destroying, you know, my nervous system. So during that time, I knew I wasn't going to be able to work. I didn't want to put myself out into the world while I have no immune system and COVID is still a thing. So I was just like freaking out. Like, what am I going to do? I literally have no source of income. And NFTs, when I started to finally make sales in August, it changed my entire life. It was right. I was literally at the end of my rope. I was out of money. I was about to apply for disability because I, I was just like, this is the point I'm at. It's either I find a job now that works with my health condition or I have to apply for disability, which I probably would have gotten it with my condition easily. But NFTs saved my life, truly saved my life. And the fact that people decided to invest in me and my art after hearing my story in, in a Twitter space, when I finally got the courage after several months to speak up and share my story, people just came out of the woodworks and wanted to support me and wanted to, and like were blown away by my art. And it was just like, literally blows my mind still to this day that I can reach a global audience with my art and inspire people and people like my art and they want to invest in me as an artist. And it's, it just completely blows my mind. This community, this whole NFT journey has absolutely changed my life. Whether I'm making sales or not, like this community has changed my life by always being there to support me through like the deepest, darkest moments of this health struggle. And I hope that, I do hope at some point that my health will be in a better place, but unfortunately my treatments that I went through did not work. So like, I don't know what the next step is for me. You know, I have about a 30% chance of recovery. And so far that's not really looking so great considering my treatments I just went through did not. In fact, my antibody numbers actually got worse somehow. So it's still a very scary time for me. There's still a lot of uncertainty in my life. So I kind of feel like I'm living these two different lives of like, oh, I'm finally successful with my art. I feel like this is the year that I literally made it as an artist, as a photographer in ways that I never imagined making more money in three months with my art than I ever have in a single year, just with any job. And then at the same time, lingering below the surface, I'm still fighting with this immense internal physical battle that I'm losing. Like I'm losing this battle right now, at least in terms of what the numbers show on the charts. But the thing is this journey, this NFT movement and the way it's shaped my life has given me this hope for my future that 
I didn't have before this. It's shined a light and said, you know what, you might have these limitations now physically, but that doesn't mean you can't still create your art. That doesn't mean you can't still put your art into the world. And regardless of whatever happens to me, this is the most powerful aspect of NFTs for me, for me personally, is that no matter what happens to me through the creation of my art and putting it into the NFT world and, and putting it onto the blockchain, I'm preserving that art. My art is preserved on the blockchain forever. So no matter what happens to me, my art will always be there. It will live on no matter what. And I, I think to me, that's the legacy that I really want to want to have is, is my art and, you know, the impact that it has on other people and inspiring others to follow in my footsteps, hopefully. And, you know, that's really the most that I could ask for out of this whole journey. So it's, it's just been really life altering. Like it's just been so life altering and amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for being open and, and sharing on that. It must not be easy in a way. I can't even barely imagine what you're going through because whatever I had ever in my life sounds like a, sounds like a, a kid's game now. And it just makes me realize like how that NFT community and like that work, like you said, can be life transforming because from my point of view and how I would see the space, I sometimes I had really problem understanding or like reconnecting the dots, you know, between people saying it changed my life and people over and phasing that because I've seen it happen in different spaces where people are like, this changed my life, blah, blah, blah. But then when you have real story and you know the people and you're like, oh, I understand how it did it. It's not a question of did it work or not? Yeah, absolutely. But it's more like how did it help? What did it mean? And I think you're representing right now exactly what it means to be an artist going forward in the 21st century where you can represent yourself. You can put yourself out there. You can create a body of work that can be created forever in that blockchain that can live, go beyond ourselves. Because I feel like as an artist, that's also why we put out there because we want to put out a message, we want to share stories, we want to share stuff. Just not because of our next week we have to live or next 10 years. It's, it's also, hey, can I share that with my grand, grand, grandkids that I will never meet? I get excited by that. NFTs, if no one is like understanding how powerful it is, I'll give an example that might not be applicable. But Jessica, if you were to pass away in 10, 20 years, five days, one day, tonight, it doesn't matter because you could pass also your wallet to your kids and be like, hey, here's the royalty forever of what was created. And, and that might be resold or that might be auctioned or like put in galleries. And just that is insane because if I sell prints to someone, that's it. You know, like the print is gone and I don't know what happens with it. I don't know where it went. And if people resell it or if even if this buy it for a thousand and sell it for a hundred, I still don't know what happens, you know, or it's on the side of the road, you know, <laughs> like garage sale. I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm joking. Right. I would probably buy it back. But it's something where your kids, your legacy can actually keep that. It's almost like they have now a book of everything you've created. It's like we wrote a book as artists almost and, and we can pass on that. Oh, it's so cool. Let's dive a little bit in, into that journey and that duality between how our bodies are operating, you know, and, mm -hmm. and how they're living their own life. And <laughs> also the parallel with what we would define as success in terms of art and how it works. Just to give an idea, how long did it take you between the moment 
you're like, okay, I'm going to put my out, out there. What was your mindset when you were like, I'm going to create my first NFT and how long did it actually take to get something to work or like sell? So my Genesis piece, I put on foundation after getting an invite from Ben Scar, who remains a good friend here in the space. He gave me an invite because, you know, it's one of those platforms you need an invite to get onto. He chose me because of the art that I shared with him. I guess he just really loved my art and he thought that I could go places. This had already been a while after I'd already been researching and kind of trying to figure out the ropes and all of that stuff. But I put my Genesis piece out there and then I think I just, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't expect it to sit there for so long and to not feel seen, but I put it out there and then I was just like, okay, I don't know how to reach people. I'm struggling here a little bit, but I just kept showing up in spaces every day and getting to know the community. And most of the time, honestly, for the first two months of being in Twitter spaces, I just listened. I would get in big Twitter spaces, small ones, like just like I would just listen and just get a feel for everything and just learn as much as I could from people. And that was honestly the most valuable thing to me is like, okay, well, my art's not selling, but it doesn't matter because I'm getting a lot of like great feedback from people. And and I started to just continue to put more work out there and, and all this stuff. And I put out my first collection on OpenSea. Nothing was selling still. And I kind of reached a low point where I was like, maybe I just don't belong here. Maybe there isn't a market for storm photography. Maybe people just don't care about storms. Maybe it's just not what people consider art because there's a lot of incredible, gorgeous landscape photography out there. A lot of gorgeous night sky photography with a, you know, the Milky Way, a lot of just really pretty Aurora photography. There's so many different incredible things, like so many different kinds of photographers, but there weren't really many storm photographers. And so I kind of wondered if like, maybe I just was not in the right place. Maybe I didn't have a place here. I was already pretty low anyway, mentally, because of what I was going through. I was going through my treatments literally at that moment. And I was ready to give up on NFTs. I was just like, my work sucks. Everything sucks. I'm terrible. Nobody likes me. <laughs> it was just like, I was really just like down on myself because I was already going through so much. And I was just at the end of my rope. And someone tagged, I don't want to dox him, but he, I, I, I might as well. He already knows how much he's changed my life. Somebody, you know, tagged Dee's. His positive and, credit, I think they'll appreciate. <laughs> I think so. I mean, he already knows like the impact he's had on my life. You know, Dee's is one of the biggest collectors of photography in the entire space. And somebody tagged him in one of my posts where I was just like, you know, it's bad when you're willing to literally auction off a photo and still no one even bids on it. And I was just like bummed out. I was ready to give up. And he really loved my piece. He really loved my art. He um, put in an offer for 0.75 ETH. And I didn't even wait for anyone to counter it. I just accepted it immediately because I was so excited that anyone would even bid on my piece at all. And especially, you know, especially someone like Dee's. And then that night was the first time that I actually got up in his Twitter space, initially only with the intention of, This was in August. So this was, you know, a good two and a half months after listing my Genesis piece. Well, I, I'm just going to pause. Go ahead. Because let that sink in. It was two and a half months later after yeah. you put your Genesis piece and mm -hmm. the collection. So yeah, just, just put yourself in. And it's a space that, that was exploding. Like we're talking mm -hmm. about like that period is like crazy from 
I would say February 2021 until until now it's been insane. So it's not we're not talking in five years. We're talking about mm-hmm. now. So exactly. I just want to remind people to be a little humble on on the on the timeframes. Patience is absolutely key. Patience and staying involved in the community. And that night I got up into that space to really with the intention of just thanking D's, but it kind of evolved into them wanting to hear my story. And so I shared my story of my health journey and how it's impacted my art. And I just lost it in this space. I don't know. It's like all of a sudden, everything that I'd been dealing with, everything that I've been feeling, and then mix that with the gratitude that I was feeling towards D's in that moment, I just like emotionally like broke down. I was just like sobbing in D's space. <laughs> and I was just like, I got myself together. And I still came through and I wanted to just, because it was really important for me to share that message of how important it really is that we're in this space right now, creating our art and putting it on the blockchain where it can be preserved forever, no matter what happens to us. And from there, I guess my story impacted a lot of people and my work just started being picked up left and right. And my collection sold out and then my next collection sold out. And it was just like a tidal wave of things happening for me. And it just felt like such a tremendous blessing that, you know, like people truly not everyone knows my story. You know, it's not like I was sharing this. I, I don't share it a whole lot, you know, my health journey, but because I don't want people to buy my art because they feel sorry for me. But from there, it was just like these people continue to give me a platform and promote my work and lift me up. You know, now that I feel like I have a little bit of a platform, now I'm able to then pay that forward and lift up other artists that are just brand new to the space and, and I'm lifting them up as well. So it's like a this, this is what this space is all about. It's this forward propagation that it's like, the snowball, it keeps growing and growing as it rolls down the hill. And you're just bringing more and more people with you and lifting them up. And just this forward momentum that we're all carrying with our art as we're creating it. It's just so incredible to be a part of this movement. It's such a strange space. I haven't been very active lately, but I actually heard about you on this space the first time. <laughs> really? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's probably the first Twitter space I ever joined ever. What? And I was like, oh, this is fun. It sounds like Clubhouse, but it seems cooler because there's Twitter around it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, oh, that's so interesting. And so I was just checking out everyone who either would speak or was around the space. I'm just like very curious. And when I saw your art, I instantly was like, oh my God, this is childhood like dreams and stuff, you know, like photos. I'm like, this is perfect. And then I started digging into your story. I'm like, oh my God, you're also, and I don't mean it in a bad way, but you're a female, you're an artist, you're in in that, I think, very male dominant thing from an external point of view, which I don't know anything about meteorology, but every time I would watch shows, when I was a kid, it was men, you know, like men, like with big trucks and doing their thing. And so I was like, oh, this is perfect. And at the back of my head, I'm like, I'm always trying, you know, especially with the podcast and stuff, like just share stories are that are a little different and not just different, but also that really resonates with me. And I'm like, oh, hell yes. Yes to Jessica, like what you're creating is amazing. Let's check it out a little more. So I, I did more digging. I looked at the collections and stuff and I got really excited. I pinned down a few other people and then I think I joined two other spaces over the next I don't know, it's been four months (laughs) or three, maybe two, three months now. When you create art like that, and I feel like when you're very authentic and when it comes, it comes through, you know, that you're excited. You can't take those photos and not be passionate about that kind of thing. 
It's not something that you can wing it on a Sunday at sunset. And so it, it really shines through. And, and I'm so excited for, for you and, and for this journey. And by the way, guys, if you uh, in the show notes has everything, like we'll put the, the links to the to your foundation profile, to the OpenSea collections, to Twitter, everything. What is happening now? Where are you going? And how do you move forward from that point? Because... I imagine there is always that I'm going to make assumptions, but there is always it's like the storm, you know, it's, you know, it starts at the beginning, it's like big and beautiful. And then at one point it hits, so and then it leaves. So well, how do you see that that transition into from these are my first ones and I'm going forward as maybe established? Really, I think I might put out one more collection of stormscapes because I just I have a lot of really beautiful storm images from over the years that just haven't really had a place that they could really call home. And again, because I've been doing this for 10 years, I have a large body of work that I would like to share. And I do feel that even though as my really, my best pieces are going to continue to rise in cost. And so like I'm listing pieces for four, five, six ETH, and even up to 10 ETH with my latest piece that I dropped on Cactux. Vince's new platform, Tuck Start Art. I put um, an animated storm photo on there that I really view as my masterpiece because it's an animated supercell. It's rotating. It looks like it's rotating, but it's a still image. So I ran it through some software and added some animation to it. And so I listed that one for 10 ETH because that, that's a type of art I've never created before. And it, it feels like the absolute apex of my storm photography journey up to this point. So that one's my highest listed piece. I, I have pieces that are listed higher on secondary. I have one of my supercell shots is, is listed at 20 ETH by the collector. So I've got some pieces that are really starting to really go up in value, but I still do want to make sure that my art is accessible to collectors that still would like to have a piece of my art. So I'm still going to probably put out one more collection of images that'll probably be priced anywhere from 0.25 to point five or somewhere in that range of storm images that are still good. They still represent me and my journey. They're just not going to be my very best pieces. So that will probably be another stormscapes volume. So I've got two volumes of my stormscapes images, and then I'll probably put out a third one at some point. My plan overall is to put together a photo book that I'm actually publishing called Stormscapes. And it's going to be just reflecting my journey over the last 10 years of storm photography. So Really excited for that one. Just started it in the last month or so. So I have a lot, kind of a long way to go. But yeah, so my journey really, or my my plan is just to continue to grow the value of my art. And next chase season, hopefully I can get some more amazing imagery that I can just continue to put my art out and just continue to create new art with NFTs and, and just see how I want to evolve over time. And if I want to start doing things like you know, I could maybe have started to maybe consider, you know, maybe I'll do some time lapses. Maybe I'll start like incorporating some other cool perks with my NFT purchases. Like if you buy this NFT, I'll take you on a storm chasing tour or a storm photography tour. And uh, I do have storm photography tours that I am actually releasing to the public here over the, probably by the end of the year, I think I'm still putting that page of my website together, but I've already been doing storm tours privately, but that's something I want to release to the public. And then I thought, well, if I release this and I show, you know, this is the cost of my tour. However, if you buy this NFT, you get a free tour kind of thing. So that might be something I play around with and just see how that goes. 
I mean, no matter what happens, I'm going to be chasing storms. And I have a chase partner that I work with a lot as well, who helps me with my driving, things like that at times. But for the most part, like my plan is just to continue chasing and photographing storms for as long as NFTs is lucrative for me. That's I'm trying to make NFTs my full-time thing. And since August, they have been. So I'm hoping to keep that momentum going. Yeah. It's one of those momentum that you have to keep going. If if you just drop it, I, I don't think it, you know, it's it's like uh, Picasso saying, okay, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to keep right, cool. creating. I, I sold a few pieces to you guys. Exactly. <laughs> if it's yeah, in you... your DNA, you'll keep creating. Exactly. And that's it. That's, I'll always be creating art, whether it sells or not. But I, my hope is definitely that people will, will continue to be inspired by my art and want to invest in my journey and, and to everyone that already has up to this point, even if it's just with sharing and, and retweeting my work. I'm just so eternally thankful and grateful for every single person, even people like you that decide to give me an opportunity to share my story on this podcast. It just means so much to me that you would even want to hear my story and, and give me the chance to talk about my art. So I just really appreciate it. Yeah, I I don't know. I think your story is fascinating. Everyone's story is fascinating with the depends how that one person sees it too, you know. I think I think you understand the depth and the value of your own I, I'm gonna go really wide, but like existence here, you know, and like yeah. what it means to even witness that, you know, like who knows, maybe Maybe you're being supercharged by the storms. <laughs> the storms are my fuel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Who knows? That wouldn't be too crazy. We've all experienced no. if you've been in thunderstorm, you can experience like your skin change or like it recharges me it. truly. Like if I go too long without storms, I feel depleted. And and as soon as I'm around <laughs> the energy of the storm again, I feel like I'm revived. It's truly <laughs> I yeah, that's not hard to imagine. Yeah, it's like me in the ocean, you know, I need to get in, in the water from time to time, otherwise it's just I don't feel complete. That's amazing. Storm tours. Okay, that one, whenever it's live, we're going to link it below. If I do come in your area, we'll try to make a YouTube video together and we'll link more to that so we can share with people the experience. That would be really fun. And honestly, in the NFT space, can you tell me... So you mentioned a few things which I think is going more and more towards it where... You can use the NFT to, for example, book a tour and you get access mm -hmm. and you have the NFT at the same time. Maybe you can give a few more perks. How do you see NFTs work in five years in our space? If, I know you don't have a crystal ball, <laughs> but like, if you were to take a wild stab at it, what do you see coming up? I think that's exactly it. I think we're going to start to see NFTs have so much more utility even than we can envision right now. It's hard to imagine what could it really lead to? You know, there's so many different things. And, and like you said, it's like, okay, you know, like photographers starting to get creative with what they're including with those NFTs and what those NFTs, what kind of perks are coming with that. And, and, you know, like I said, with the storm chasing tour, that could just be one aspect. Let's say that collector doesn't want to go on a storm photography tour. I know for a fact that some people just don't want anything to do with being near storms. They're scary. It's very dangerous, right? There's I still a certain... don't get that part. First, I know. I'm like, what? Do, what do you mean? You have you but... metallurgists? You don't want to go there? What? What? <laughs> well, I think I think there is a lot of inherent risk and danger with storm yeah. chasing. So there is a liability factor for myself as an artist if I do want to start incorporating yes. storm tours. However, a, an alternative to that could be like I will go for a week storm chasing and create a custom NFT only for you and it'll be airdropped to you and it'll just mm. be like something very specific for you 
Um, oh, commission work. Like Sounds a commission, great. exactly, yeah. exactly. Commission work, it could be another gateway for artists for commissions. That's exactly, I think, one route where I, I could see that going. It could be tickets to a photo exhibition that's your art that you're exhibiting in a certain gallery. It could be like, I always like to include prints for my collectors that if they want them. So I'm always going to continue to offer that because I think having that tangible piece, a beautiful piece of art that you can put on your wall, I think is truly adds value to the art that you're um, delivering to people. And not everyone needs that or wants, wants the physical piece, but I think having that tangible value really helps it be that much more meaningful for collectors when they can hang a piece of your art on their walls. That's what it is. And then knowing that no matter what happens, like they have that NFT, they have the original, they own that piece too. So it's just, as you increase your value as an artist, the piece that they're holding is increasing in value as well. So most of my collectors have held on to my work and have not tried to flip it. And that's fine if they do, obviously. I Either way, whether they want to flip it for higher value and help me with secondary sales, that's great. Or if they truly do love my art and want to hold on to it forever, that means just as much to me. So at the end of the day, my goal is just, I'm just trying to create more art that inspires people. And if I can add utility to that, I'm going to look for ways to do that. But at the end of the day, I hope people will just continue supporting art for the sake of art. You know, I still have that purist kind of mindset sometimes with art. Like I do think that it it should be appreciated for face value of what it truly is, but I also see no harm in continuing to add utility and get creative with contracts and things like that. So I don't even know what the future holds. I think it's going to be really exciting to see how it evolves and how people get creative with adding utility to their, to their art. Yeah. I think as art thing, like staying flexible and understanding things will change. I don't think it will stay the... It already has changed from March to now, you know, like probably 60,000 times and it will continue to do so. So it's almost a technical question, but the value, and that's something I explained through one of my videos, I was explaining to people, the value is that now you can send stuff to your collectors very easily. You can connect with them in a way you know who they are in real time, even if your art gets resold, which is something like we mentioned earlier with prints or books or anything like that you wouldn't really know. Is there a way to connect through the blockchain? Like, can we send them a message? I'm still, I still want to know or like figure this out. Or is it only if they become public on Twitter or if their uh, wallet address is, is made uh, a link to some profile? Yeah, so that can be hard. Because I still have quite a few anonymous collectors that I have no I have no idea who they are or I just know that they collected my art. I can't find any sort of link to their profile or anything like that. I just happen to know who they are or they've reached out to let me know that they've collected a piece from me. But there are several anonymous collectors that I have. So I always try to make a personal connection with my collectors if I'm able to, but it's not always possible. And also a lot of collectors are very private about their identity. So it, not everyone wants you to send them a print because they don't want to give out their address or their name or anything like that. So that can be hard, but I just try to, most people are like, it, some collectors will have like a PO box so that they don't have to give away or like a business address. You know, they're trying to protect their identity, which completely makes sense. So I do try my very best to connect and build relationships with my collectors and several of my collectors like these, I now consider, you know, good friends. And I, I just treasure those relationships so much, so valuable to me. 
another collector, Moby, who's become a very, very close friend. I'm actually working with him on a project called Mojo Heads, where he's emojifying artists and turning them into emojis. And then we get a percentage of those secondary sales. And so that's really cool. It's like, just, I think collaboration within the community is just really amazing. And building relationships with people is really what keeps me coming back to this space is building those relationships. That's fascinating. Yeah, I feel like that's a big part. And I'll be honest, at the beginning, especially looking from outside, I was like, okay, everyone's talking about community and, and stuff. And it was almost triggering some of my buttons where I was like, something's not right. You can't just rely on the community in a way. You know, it's not just, let's say, ETH does not appear out of thin air to buy that art. But over time, also what I understood, and that's what I mentioned, like it's fascinating because who collects the art is very different from the traditional art collectors, I feel. Like I've seen friends who collected stuff that I would never think they're even interested in art, which means that money could be from tech entrepreneurs who are our age. You know, they're maybe between 25, 35 or 40, and they actually got into the crypto space early. They have those assets, they want to reinvest, they want to buy stuff, but they would never ever consider taking it out and buying a Van Gogh or like famous artist in the old traditional sense of things. And so that's how I started to see that that whole ecosystem was working. And, and then, like you mentioned, it's a virtuous cycle. If you invest money in artists and artists grow, then they can also, if they're interested, reinvest in other artists, which, which is always good. You hit something pretty spot on, really important point that I think is hard for artists at times is traditionally NFTs are viewed through the scope of investing in something. I mean, it, it, people don't want to say that, but it's true. It's like a lot of these projects, especially like the generative projects, the PFP projects and things like that, typically that's been that because that was around first before art was. So a lot of collectors have had that mentality of what am I buying now that I can flip for profit later? Or what, what am I buying that I can hold for a long time and eventually it's going to be worth a ton of money. Whereas art being relatively new to the scene, these one-of-one one art pieces, those are seen as a higher risk investment because there's absolutely no way of knowing if that art is going to be worth something later on. You're actually causing collectors to shift how they're thinking a little bit and seeing, well, actually, I just want to collect this piece because I like the art. I don't care if it's ever going to be something that I flip for money. And, and that's certain collectors have that mentality with the art that they collect. Like they have it very split in their mind between, okay, these are my PFPs and my journal of projects that I may or may not flip. And then this, this is, is my, my casino money. Yeah, this is my casino <laughs> I, money. Exactly. I like to say it like that because people, no offense to anyone in the community, but if you're telling me that you're a professional investor in NFT, like the space is not that long enough that you can call yourself a professional or make it, you know, it's more like, okay, I'm investing in 10 startups, hopefully one makes it out. And so I call it casino, because I think anyone investing in anything should be okay with losing it all. You know, well, so that's exactly if it. I go like, to Vegas, and I put $500, I probably know yeah. it will never come back. Exactly. That's a very important philosophy that people need to keep in mind. That when they're mitigating their risk, their financial risk, you should only be putting money into crypto and NFTs and whatever that you can afford to lose. You have to be okay with investing in a project and watching it go to zero because I've done it. I've had this happen and I'm newer to the space. So I know this can be the way that it goes sometimes. And you just have to be willing to part with that money. Don't invest what you can't afford to lose. That's super critical. But 
I think these collectors that are also, you know, buying these, these um, one of one art pieces, I feel like a good majority or good percentage of them are truly investing in the art because they love the art or they want to support the artist. There are some that I think are trying to flip the art so that they can help artists get their secondary market going. There's different philosophies to it. And I think it's with your collections that are lower priced, you're pricing them that way because you're hoping for a secondary market to keep that income stream coming from supplementary, you know, the supplementary income stream coming. Whereas you're one of ones, you're pricing those in a way that once they go, you're okay with the price that you let them go at knowing that they may never sell again. That's why my one of ones, my standalone one of ones are priced higher for that reason, because it's like, you know, this is a piece that means the world to me. I'm not willing to let it go at a collection price. It's going to be priced three, four, five ETH because, or more, because that's the value that it has to me. It's too important for me to let it go at a lower price. So that's where you're having that more traditional art approach where you're pricing it to sell it. You're not pricing it, hoping that your collector is going to flip it. It's just, different approaches. I love that you actually touched on that because it's a debate a lot of people have and those one-on-one pieces. And even personally, I got a few projects and all of them, I, I think I sold one thing or two that were airdropped or that I didn't really like. The rest, I just kept it. I, I'm more like, no, I, I want that in my virtual whatever metaverse universe <laughs> that I will have in the future. I, I just like it. I had a little bit available to actually buy it. And I was like, okay, cool. I want to keep this. And meanwhile, I have friends who like flip 60 times, even some of the, the things I hold. And I'm like, okay, good for you. I still don't care. It's worth 28 now. Good. I'm not selling. And then two weeks later, it's worth eight. Like I had a Gary V thing, for example. And I'm like, cool. I got it at 0.5. It went to 21. And now it's at eight. I'm like, I don't really care right now. It's not about flipping it. And and you're always taking a guess or trying to time the market. So I think it's the same thing with the, with the photography. If you buy a print for your home, you're not thinking of, I'm going to flip it. And that's where traditional, like old school photographers, fine art photographers, like if you take David Yarrow, for example, you can listen to, he's been on the podcast and I heard him speak once, which was really interesting. I think it was Tim Ferriss. And think his pieces start at $10,000. You can't even see the price online. You have to submit an inquiry form, what kind of support you're looking for. And it's a very fine art process where you actually weed out, not in a bad way, but you very filter like who your collectors will be from the get-go. You know, The $100 print from Ikea is not the same as the $10,000 print person who will buy it. Not the same profile, not the same needs. And I think, Jessica, you're doing a great thing by pressing it like that for your one-on-one because then you stay in that realm where like, hey, this is not just anything. This is not just a cool photo. This is that very specific piece. This is art and this is how you should see it as an art investment for your personal collection and not let's flip it tomorrow. I think it's a great balance like or fine balance for artists to find also. I think so too. Yeah, because it makes sure that you still have some pieces out there that are accessible. For people that do want to be a part of your journey, that's I think that's amazing. But then at the same time, saying very clearly like why these pieces are so important and valuable. And yeah, I think it's great. And I have some regrets about how I priced some of my best pieces earlier in the space. And so I've taken those learning lessons and, you know, kind of evolve, like we're all learning in this space because it's all so new, right? 
all of this is going to be a learning experience. So it's that's just where I'm at in my journey now. And I hope I continue to grow and, and see how it goes. Yeah, I, I remember seeing one of your tweet about those early pieces and, and that you pulled them back and reprised them. In the moment, we do the best we can with the information we have. And then you, you just adapt in the future. Wow, Jessica, I hope this has been helpful, not just for me, but also for anyone listening. And I want to ask you maybe two parting questions. The first one, what gear do you shoot with? <laughs> Gosh, I shoot with Nikon. I'm a Nikon girl. Nikon D810, Nikon D780. And then I shoot with them a couple different lenses, telephoto, wide angle. My wide angle, my Rokinon 14 millimeter F2.8 has mm. been my main lens, but I am going to be upgrading and I'm so excited to upgrade to the super wide Sigma art lens, which is F1.8, 14 millimeter. Um, nice. Just an absolute beast of a lens. So I'm super excited for that. That's awesome. Uh, I love that you're shooting Nikon. I feel like I don't hear enough of Nikon people lately. Yeah, uh, I know. It's all Sony. <laughs> I know. I'm like Sony versus Canon. I'm like, no, Nikon was great. I shot Nikon for years as a pro, so I have no no problem with Nikon. It's um, a great camera. I still recommend it for people if they can find it for cheap on secondhand. I'm like, go for oh, it. Yeah. Last one would be, what would you recommend to, let's say someone trying to get started in two months in the NFT world? What would you let them think about, maybe? I would say just get into the community, research, listen, research everything you can find from good resources on Google. There's definitely some really amazing photographer NFT resources as well. Some good guidebooks out there that I can surely provide those references if needed. And then also just show up in Twitter spaces and just listen and just build community with the people around you. Because the more you're involved, if you come in with a community focus from the beginning and just genuinely wanting to be involved, you'll find that success will just come naturally just from being forever present and putting positive vibes into the space and just being a champion for other people and promoting others and, and just showing that you're not just here for the money. Because to be honest, it's so up and down in this space that you know that sales are never guaranteed. Just because I've had success in the past doesn't mean I'm going to continue to. It's just the space is constantly evolving and, and you just have to, all you can do is just put your art out into the world with intention and dedication and passion, and then just keep being involved in the community and keep learning and growing and, and learning what this space is all about and seeing how you can contribute to it. Because that's really, in my opinion, how you get the most from being involved in NFTs. If you're just here looking for a quick cash grab, you're probably going to be disappointed because it's just not that easy. There are people that get lucky here and there, but like, generally speaking, it is not that easy to just come in and magically just make a bunch of big sales. It's, it doesn't work that way. It's just generally does not work that way. So people want to see you involved and it does take some time investment. And if you have multiple other jobs, and you're doing all these other things, it's going to be hard for you to invest the kind of time into this space that I think is really needed to really flourish and thrive. That doesn't mean you can't find success at all. It just means it's going to be a lot harder mm -hmm. because it, it's going to be harder for you to be seen, basically. Absolutely. I, th I think that's so important to anyone. I think 
it's easy to see the golden goose without seeing all the dead geese around, you know. Yeah, that's <laughs> an a, analogy a for you. <laughs> there we go. It's slightly <laughs> creepy, but we'll that's take it for creepy. today. <laughs> I'm here for it. That's fine. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh uh, yeah, I don't know. You can ask my wife. She'll be like, you sometimes you just have the worst analogies. They're, they're way too extreme here. <laughs> oh, dial it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They're, they're not golden. They're just normal geese that walking around. <laughs> normal geese. No dead geese. <laughs> That's awesome. Jessica, um, thank you so much. Where can people find you online? What do you want to send them to? Sure. Twitter, my handle is at Doppler Jess. So like Doppler Radar, D-O-P-P-L-E-R, Jess, J-E-S-S. That's my Twitter. My website is jessicamphotographer.com. And then Foundation and OpenSea, my username on both of those platforms is Doppler Jess. And in fact, I think it's also Doppler Jess on Tux.art. That's a new platform that just, you know, was developed. But yeah, Doppler Jess pretty much everywhere, except for my main website. (laughs) Cool. Awesome. Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time. It's the one thing we cannot trade in this world. So thank you. I really appreciate it. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Before you go, quick question. Would you like to receive twice a month for free my top five email? It's an email that I craft with love and passion in which I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also things I've been thinking about, gear, tips and photos that I absolutely love. If that resonates with you, if you want to peek into that universe, please join thousands of other readers. Sign up for free at ptl.fm forward slash top five. That's ptl.fm forward slash top five. Thank you so much and have a beautiful day. Remember, try something different, try something new.